Uh, you remember last week, um, Nate brought something for show and tell, and I was pretty determined not to be outdone by Nate. <clears throat> so I have brought a gift that I have received from you all uh, here at church as well. Uh, I have received this gift. It's a, it's a coffee mug. And uh, on, the, on the mug it says, be careful or you will end up in my sermon. And um, it was given to me by someone who has already ended up in my sermon, so I will not mention that person's name. <clears throat> I like sermons that are practical and uh, personal, and there is, uh, I guess, a constant danger of those around me winding up as an illustration in my sermon. So, in light of this desire for practicality and personalness, I sometimes take it too far, and I have to admit that I have outdone myself uh, because I have actually ended up in my own sermon. So, um, yeah, this, this message, as I've studied about it, is uh, it's about me, and it's to me, and it's for me personally. So, um, yeah. This is all about me this morning. I, I apologize for the rest of you. Now, but we're going to look at the book of Jonah this morning in chapter 1. And I was not following along while Norman was reading. And most of you aren't either. Because you already know the story of Jonah. It was boring. Um, no need to follow along. You already knew that he was going to be thrown in the ocean and swallowed by a fish. And you know it all. Unfortunately, the, the book of Jonah has been redu reduced to uh, a child's story. And we sort of see the book of Jonah on that level. It's simple, and um, the, the message has really been oversimplified, and maybe even missed entirely. The book of Jonah is, is anything but child's play. It's, it's, um, it has a subject and a message it's complex, it's um, probably even more complex than our human minds can, can understand, some of the messages and thoughts in the book of Jonah. So the thoughts that I'm sharing today are not original with me. I've read several books uh, about Jonah. I've listened to probably over a dozen sermons and different commentators uh, speaking about Jonah. Um, a couple of books that I read was uh, Severe Mercy, and another one was called The Prodigal Prophet. Um, these all are, um, yeah, parts of these so thoughts that were brought out in these books will be talked about here today. Much like uh, Jonah was eventually vomited out on dry land, it sort of feels like I'm about to vomit this story out on you here today. And so I don't know if I should say I'm sorry or excuse me, or how that works, but uh, hopefully you'll bear with me. So as we study the book of Jonah, there are things that um, we'll need to unlearn before we can learn what the book of Jonah has uh, to teach us. Um, this is not a story about a fish, or sailors, or Jonah, or Nineveh. 
um, or the plant or the worm that ate the plant. Um, so let's look at this book and let's think about um, the context of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is unique. It sort of drops you into an existing setting and the, there's something important about that setting that we need uh, to understand, to understand the message of this book. So Jonah was a prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's what uh, the word of the Lord came to the prophets. He was a prophet. He was, um, yeah, that was his job, to receive the word of the Lord and to share that with the people around him. Jonah was a prophet, although not a very good one. A couple of uh, earlier, more well-known prophets are Elijah and Elisha. Um, these men risked their lives to bring the gospel, to bring God's word to the people who had fallen into idolatry and had forgotten God. This was Jonah's job. So if you page through the books of the Bible around Jonah, uh, like Hosea, and Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, uh, Micah, Habakkuk, all these books begin basically the same way. Um, it says, you know, the word of the Lord came to Obadiah. And then it tells you a little bit about Obadiah, and then it tells you all the words of the Lord. Or it might say, the vision of Obadiah. And this is how the, the books of the prophet uh, begins. But um, the book of Jonah is different. Um, the book of Jonah is not about the prophecy to Nineveh. That's actually found in the book of Nahum. The book of Jonah is all about the prophet rather than the message. So this is a different uh, type of story that as compared to the other minor prophets. And so the message that God wants to share with us is learned in observing Jonah. So um, this is sort of fun for me. We, we just get to pick Jonah apart. Everything he said, everything he did, we're just going to talk about it. And um, it sort of makes us feel good to do that because, after all, we're, we're much better than Jonah. Um, I probably won't use many illustrations in this sermon because we're actually talking about the book of Jonah, which is one giant illustration about the message that I believe Jonah and God want us uh, to understand. So, uh, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, verse 23, we're introduced to Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II reigned in Samaria for, it says, 41 years. Uh, and Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes after they were divided. And Jeroboam was an evil king in the sight of the Lord. He led Israel into sin and wickedness. And in verse 25, it says that he, Jeroboam II, he restored the borders of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spake by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hefer. So that's a little bit of the background of Jonah and the time where he lived. Jonah actually means dove, and Amittai means faithfulness. So um, you could say that Jonah means dove, son of faithfulness. He prophesied good things for Israel. Expansion of their borders, a uh, very popular message to have if you're going to be a prophet in that time. 
So um, even though Jeroboam was wicked and Israel was sinning greatly, God was blessing them with expansion and success and good times. These were good days. Now, Jonah's hometown was Gath-Hefer. And this town is in the region of Galilee. It's near uh, Nazareth. And um, if you were like my wife and you wanted a Christmas message, this is about as close as you'll get. Uh, Jonah grew up near Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Merry Christmas. Um, By the way, when I told my wife I was preaching about Jonah, she said, uh, please don't make it depressing. And so with those depressing words, I kept studying. So we'll continue in in 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, God saw that there was no helper for Israel and that they were in affliction. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, this vile, wicked king of Israel. So what Jeroboam and the Israelites deserved was judgment. And what they received was grace. So this is Israel in the time of Jonah the prophet. They were moving quickly towards the pagan nations around them, deserving judgment, and yet God provided mercy and grace and success. So, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Amittai, the son, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and we already talked about um, uh, Jonah, meaning dove, son of faithfulness. And I think at this point we're supposed to laugh a little bit because we know how the story ends. We know Jonah's attitude and his, his reaction to what God had told him. And he's not a dove. He's not a peaceful person. Uh, there's all kinds of turmoil in his life. And he's not faithful. And so this is sort of sarcastic. Dove, son of faithfulness. Now, um, verse 2, God says, Arise and go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Um, Assyria is the leading empire of the day. And as one historian noted, they were extremely brilliant. They had uh, strategies and tactics for war and tools that were um, sort of ahead of their time, uh, very advanced. And Assyria was the number one enemy of Israel. So Nineveh was the capital of this Assyrian empire. And um, in the British Museum in London, there's lots of uh, relics and artifacts and information that you can uh, see to learn about the culture of uh, this empire. And interestingly, in, in 2014, when ISIS was um, taking over Mosul, Iraq, um, I think several bombs went off that accidentally helped them discover one of the palaces of this uh, ancient empire. But not only were the Assyrians a brilliant people, they were also very brutal. Um, The walls of their city were lined with skins, and these were not animal skins, but they were skins of their enemies that they had overthrown. Captors were skinned alive, often in view of their comrades. If you managed to escape this brutality, you were likely chained to a gate like a dog or made to participate in parades while wearing 
a necklace of human heads of your fallen uh, comrades, or you were buried alive under dead bodies. Later, as Jonah entered the city of Nineveh, this is likely, among other things, what he saw and experienced just outside the city gate. So these are some of the details that you will not find in your child's bedtime storybook. But they were all part of the context of this story. The Ninevites, being the capital city of the Seared Empire, was the epitome of brutality, bloodshed, and violence, and every evil practice you could imagine. In the book of Nahum, the third chapter, where God uh, speaks and gives the prophecy against Nineveh, he says that it is a bloody city with a multitude of slain and great number of carcasses with no end to corpses upon which they stumble. A very grim description of Nineveh. So God calls Jonah east um, to Nineveh, about 500 miles, to this pagan city filled with violence, bloodshed, and hatred. And instead, Jonah goes down to Joppa. He gets on a ship and he heads for Tarshish. Jonah wants to go to Tarshish, and Tarshish is way out there. Um, it's basically Timbuktu. It's the edge of the world. Um, after you head through the Strait of Gibraltar, I think it is right there, if you continue to head uh, in that direction, you will get to uh, us here in America eventually. So that was the edge of the world. Uh, he just wanted to get out, to leave. So he takes this 2,500-mile uh, cruise to nowhere. You know, in Nineveh, you have just a bloodthirsty, um, wicked, vile, noisy, evil place. But in Tarshish, it's tranquil and peaceful and rest. There's reprieve. So rather than going to this busy frantic city with all its bloody violence. Jonah pictures himself on a chair on the beach with his feet propped up watching the surf. And what a peaceful place to be to hear God's voice. So Jonah, the prophet of God, makes a deliberate decision to escape the presence of Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh is one of the words that you'll see a lot of in the book of Jonah. And this is the personal God, the I am. Uh, it's funny to think about Jonah, son of Amittai, you know, dove, son of faithfulness, running from the personal creator of the universe, who knows the intricate details of each of our lives and who created us in our mother's womb. We know, of course, from Psalm 139 that running from God is not something that is possible. There's nowhere you can go to escape the presence of Almighty God. One of the interesting things that I've found in the, the book of Jonah is the very expressive and even exaggerated uh, language that is used. Everything is animated, and certain words are used just excessively, and you sort of begin to get the point, or maybe even uh, the exaggerated point. 
One of those words is the Hebrew word gadal, meaning huge. There's a great wind, a mighty tempest. The men were exceedingly afraid, and of course, there was a great fish. Everything's huge in this story. Another one of the repeated words is the word that we translate down. Fleeing from God, Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship, and he lays down to go to sleep. And eventually, he winds up down at the bottom of the ocean. I would like to point out that this story is supposed to be humorous. I believe that it's written with humor built in. It's, um, it's also full of satire. Um, nobody in the story acts as they should, or as you would expect. A prophet doesn't run from his God. Um, you shouldn't sleep in a storm. Pagan sailors shouldn't repent. Uh, they shouldn't even care for a Hebrew sailor. A ship shouldn't contemplate. A giant fish should bring death, not life. And God should not favor the enemy of his people. Nobody in this story is acting as they should. In verse 4, your Bible says that the ship was like to be broken, or it threatened to break up. So the Hebrew word that's used is actually a verb, hashav, which means to think or consider. And so here you have the prophet of Yahweh running from God on a thinking ship. It's thinking about sinking. And it's thinking about sinking because God has sent a divinely appointed storm, a huge storm with huge winds and massive waves to rescue his prophet. So the ship is thinking about sinking, and in verse 5, the sailors were crying out to their gods, which is exactly what the prophet should have been doing and wasn't. But he's below the deck. He's sleeping in apathetic slumber, already tired from his running from God. Above the deck, there's chaos, all kinds of frantic acti activity. They're praying to their gods. They're throwing cargo overboard. They're trying to do everything they can to keep um, the water on the outside of the boat, I guess. But below the deck, the prophet who should be praying to God is not. And so the pagan shipmaster begs the prophet of God to pray to his God. And I think we understand uh, in a, just a very general sense that when you're running from God, you're basically asleep at the wheel. When you're running from God, you're not necessarily praying. You're running from the voice of God, like Adam and Eve, in shame and fear, and you're below the deck, and you're tuned out. Running from God is, of course, a downward spiral, and we've already noticed the use of the word down in this passage. But every step away from God is a step downward. Now, as humans, we actually don't necessarily mind this downward spiral so much as you would think. Because it sort of feels like at some points we can finally get below deck, out of the weather, away from the storm, and we find rest. But it's an apathetic and pathetic sleep 
of death. And you might say, what's wrong with Jonah's decisions? It was a personal choice for him to go to Tarshish. Nobody needed to be hurt. It was just him and the Lord. And they disagreed a little bit, and so he walked away for a bit. Just a personal choice. Nobody else. It didn't bother anybody else. But we can see from the illustration of this story that when you're running and when you're sleeping below the deck, there's the sailors above the deck who are in a fight for their life. And I believe that, that what, well, while Jonah slept, the sailors were just trying to survive. They were barely holding on. Below the deck, it's calm, but just above the deck, it's chaos. I, th- I don't think most of Israel missed Jonah too much at this point. He wasn't uh, hurting them. But the people around Jonah were on the brink of death. And they were on the brink of death because of these, the decisions that he had made and the storms that were following him. And, and I can promise you that if you're running from God, if I'm running from God, those closest to me are suffering the most. And we belong to a church, a community here, and we suffer when we run. When you run, I suffer. When I run, you suffer. What's fascinating to me in this story is that the sailors were doing everything they could to help Jonah. They, they even needed to come and wake him up and alert him to the storm. And they were, they were not only fighting for their life, but they were fighting for Jonah's life. Running from God inflicts excruciating pain for those closest to you. And all the while you're asleep. It's like a spiritual hangover. You're completely unconscious and oblivious to what's happening around you under the influence of your spiritual apathy. So in verses 6 and 7, they finally pull him from this downward spiral and they bring him up to the deck of the ship and these pagan sailors cast lots. And lo and behold, the lot fell on Jonah. He was the culprit for this storm. And once again, it's ironic that God uses these pagan sailors to expose God's prophet as the problem behind it all. So in verse 8, they begin to uh, spiderweb Jonah with questions. They just come from every angle. They say, what, you, what are you about? Where are you from? What's your country? And uh, from what people art thou? It's sort of like uh, when you come back late and your mom meets you at the door and uh, she has one or two questions. Where were you? Who were you with? What did you do? Where did you eat? Where did you sleep? Where were you going so long? Did you have fun? And did you say please and thank you? And usually, um, in my experience, a young man will usually pick one or two questions that he's comfortable answering when he's peppered with these many questions. And that's what Jonah did. He answered one or two questions. He's a Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God who made the heaven, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And this, I believe, is probably one of the most humorous points of the book of Jonah. 
And maybe the saddest line as well. Here you have the prophet of God running away on a ship on the sea that, by the way, God had made. And he says, I am a Hebrew. You know, one of the covenant people, the favored ones, you know, the good people, I'm one of them. And I fear the Lord, the God who made the sea, which is trying to kill you, and the dry land. It doesn't really make sense. He's trying to flee from God while sitting on a thinking ship in the middle of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea, you know, the the sea that God had made. So the sailors in verse 11, they ask Jonah, what can be done to appease God and to bring peace and calm? And they understood that they were in a storm. And they understood that the storm was not a natural storm. It was created by God. And they understood that they were transporting God's runaway prophet on a, on a sea in a storm that God sent. Scary place to be. In verse 12, um, Jonah, it appears like, begins to find himself. He says, well, yeah, this is all my fault. Chuck me into the sea and everything will work out. And some have said that Jonah's invitation to throw him into the sea was the beginning of his journey towards repentance. And I should maybe be careful, but I would like to say that I disagree 100%. I think Jonah is still running from God. And it's almost a mockery for Jonah to say, God, if you're going to chase me this far, I'm just going down. I'm going down to the bottom of the ocean or you can't find me. I'm going to die. And I think it seems like he would rather die in the depths of this sea than come back to God, who is probably going to show mercy to his enemies. And I believe this reveals Jonah to be the the selfish, runaway prophet that he was. If you think you're off my rocker for thinking that a prophet of God could get to the point in his life where he's just willing to throw it all away, and lose his life so that he doesn't have to follow God, you can just read the rest of the book of Jonah, where he actually admits it in a later chapter. So these, uh, these pagan men are working feverishly through the wrath of the storm, brought on by the man of God who is refusing to speak to God, and they finally stop fighting with the storm, and they begin praying to God for forgiveness. Uh, because what they're about to do is to throw Jonah into the sea. They're about to take this man's life and pitch him overboard. And you can imagine the, the reasoning and the conversation that they had with God about this. You know, the, don't blame us. It's, it's not our fault. It's his idea. Um, you know, please forgive us and please help us. It's amazing that Jonah was so hard-hearted that he was not the one praying. Or he didn't request to be to turn the ship around and go back. But the pagan sailors were the ones praying. They were, um, these pagan sailors, I believe, were better worshipers of Yahweh than the prophet was. They were better at showing grace than the prophet of God from the covenant Hebrew people of God. And they were better listeners than the prophet from the chosen people. Verse 15, they throw them into the sea, 
and instantly the sea is, is calm. The sea quit raging. And this scared the sailors more than the, the storm. And it caused them to offer sacrifices and make vows to God. And I believe this, this turn in their lives, this repentance, was sincere. The sacrifices and vows that they made, I don't think, could be done on the, the wooden deck of a sinking ship. I believe they had to find land, find a temple of God, and make their vows there. I believe this was sincere on their part. And so they throw uh, Jonah overboard, and verse 17 says, The Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And that's all the farther we're going to get in the book of Jonah today. But I'd like to back up and learn just a few things from, from this prodigal prophet who's receiving severe mercy from a gracious God. We'll learn later in chapter 4 that Jonah was not running from the Ninevites for fear of the Ninevites. He wasn't running because he feared being skinned alive or dragged through the city or buried alive under a heap of dead bodies. But he was running because he was scared that God would show mercy to his enemy. He was running from, the, from, the, from God because he, he, for, he foresaw God giving these people what they did not deserve. He was running because he saw God's grace. And it didn't fall in line with what he wanted to believe about who God was. So I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is, where am I in this story? You know, Jonah, he loved grace for the Israelites and for his chosen people, for the covenant people. And he loved experiencing that grace, even in spite of the wickedness that his nation was participating in and running toward. In spite of all that wickedness, God was providing mercy for them. But somehow, when the pagan people and his enemy around him received that same grace, it made him furious. He had firsthand experience and insight about God's grace, about receiving God's grace. And yet, he wanted God to be a God of wrath when he witnessed the bloodshed and guiltiness of his enemies. You could make the case that Jonah's apathy was a direct result of experiencing God's grace in a selfish way. He wanted the grace that God provided only for himself and not for those around him. I think Jonah felt this way because in his mind, the Ninevites were never going to be good enough to receive God's grace like he was, the, the chosen people, the favored covenant people of Israel. And so he ran, of course, from God. And there's many reasons that we run from God. Jonah is one example, 
Adam and Eve are another example. They hid from the voice of God. But it seems like when we create a God, or when God acts in a way that doesn't line up with the God that we've created, we run. If you think about it, you know the story of of Nineveh. They repented. Every prophet around Jonah would have loved to participate in the revival of 120,000 people. That should have been the ultimate goal, right? There would have, there's no better turnout. It's, it's perfect. He preaches and the whole city repents. But that's exactly what scared Jonah in the first place. He preaches five words in Hebrew. I think it's five words and 120,000 people repent and turn to God. And this is what Jonah foresaw God doing in the lives of the Ninevites, and so he ran. Jonah is invited by God to participate in the good life where people repent. He provides grace and mercy instead of judgment. But Jonah's view of the good life was different than God's view of the good life. We understand that that running from God is is of no use because of God's grace. As Jonah ran, God pursued him through the mighty storm and then an act of severe mercy, the fish that provided life. It became the ark of salvation for Jonah. We have a treadmill in our basement and occasionally I'll get on this thing and I know not often enough, um, I'm aware of that, but you can run all day. I could go down in the basement, get on the treadmill, and run all day. And I would get sweaty and tired, and I'd be out of breath. But the most frustrating part is, when I step off the treadmill, I'm still in my basement. I have gotten nowhere. And it's a little bit like running from God. It's a waste of time to run from a God who is everywhere who created all things, and who holds the world in the palm of his hands. It's a total waste of time. And we know that we need God's grace. And we want God's grace. And we know that we want it, we know that we need it. But we want to serve a God that only operates within our understanding. We want to serve a God that that obeys me. We want to serve a God that serves me. I want to worship a God that thinks like me. I want me to be God. I want to be my own God. This is the sin of Jonah. Uh, Some of you have heard uh, the the German philosopher, his name is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he said some very strange things, but one He said, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. We need more philosophers, I think, because that's brilliant, right? Just, yeah. It seems like sometimes philosophers just waste words with the obvious. But one thing he said is that there cannot be a God because if there were one, I could not believe that I was not he. And basically what Nietzsche is admitting is that he is his own God. And so therefore there can't be a real God in heaven. C.S. Lewis refuted that remark and said, if Jonah teaches us anything, 
It is that there is a God in heaven, and he is seated on his throne, and you are not him. Jonah's problem is not necessarily the running or the apathy. That's a result of his sin. His sin is idolatry. He believes in a God that he created, not in a God that created him for a unique purpose and specific calling. Jonah is a terrible person, and we we realize this as we read through the story. He doesn't act at all as a prophet of God should. He's actually a terrible prophet. And, And we're only in the first chapter. It gets actually, I think, worse. But the story is not about Jonah. It's about me. Let's just back up and look at a few things, um, just a kind of a, a broad, overarching view of, of Jonah. I believe that the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is full of the grace of God. We know that that's why Jonah's running, because God provided grace for the Israelites. Um, as Jonah runs, he receives grace. He, he, he is... Uh, God tries to stop him with a a divine storm in an act of grace. And when that doesn't work, God uses pagan sailors to awaken him. And when that doesn't work, he uses a fish to save him. These are all acts of grace from God to Jonah. So, So the book of Jonah, what I'm trying to say, is about grace. The message is about grace. One of, another thing that the, the book of Jonah teaches us is God's natural law of consequence is part of his grace. Uh, as we run from God, as we disobey God, he, he pursues us in grace to bring us back to him so that he can lavish his grace on us. And one of the ways that he does that and tries to get our attention is through natural consequences. Do you know God invented consequences? That's something that he provided when he created the world. If you walk away from God in sin, there's going to be consequences. He decided that. And that's because he's merciful and wants to draw you back to him. And so he uses those natural consequences to do that. It's one of the ways he speaks to us. If your child is is walking on a street, on a busy highway, and and, um, just running at full speed toward that busy highway, just cars and trucks, going 100 miles an hour, that the most gracious thing you can do is use any means possible to stop that child. You know, a a body slam move uh, or a WWE tackle or whatever that, you know, that, that would be considered necessary and even welcome to that child because you're doing that to prevent death. Severe mercy and this is, this is what this story is all about. God doing everything possible to stop Jonah's running. And yet Jonah, in his hard-heartedness, continues. And God just continually provides this mercy. He's trying to get his attention and bring him back. And Jonah keeps running over and over again. 
So as I was studying, um, my mind was wondering, and one of the places that it wandered to was Tarshish. You know, Jonah never got there. God, um, in mercy, rescued him. And, um, yeah, didn't allow him to get that far. But Tarshish, remember, is, is comfortable. It's, it's pleasant. It's, it's way out west. It's at the edge of the world. It's peaceful. There's nobody out there. It's just me. You know, me and God. I can, I can meet with God there. It's, it's quiet and peaceful. It's far from wicked Nineveh. And, and I would like to say that uh, this is where I picture myself in the story, in Tarshish. I've made it all the way to Tarshish. God didn't rescue me in the great storm, and I was never in the fish. But in my rebellion, I've run all the way to Tarshish. And I think that's the question that, that I've asked myself this past week is have I outrun Jonah? We read Jonah and we say, we're way better than Jonah. This prophet is a mess. But as I've read Jonah over and over again this week, the thing that kept coming back to me is, I, I, I'm worse than Jonah. I outran Jonah and I made it to Tarshish. I mean, look, look around. Look around me. Just use me as an example. I won't say you. I'll say me. My life is a piece of cake. I, I have all the comforts and luxury that I can imagine. I know there's evil out there in the world, but I've been sheltered from that. I, I choose to sort of live apart from that. I've sort of moved myself and think spiritually now. I've moved myself to kind of the remotest, furthest corner of the world where I don't really feel too much influence of evil. I am comfortable and I can, I can prop my feet up on the beach and I can hear from God all day, every day. It's perfect. I fear that our culture, American, Western, Mennonite, Lancaster County, culture is Tarshish. Welcome to Tarshish. We live the good life. And I think because we've made it to Tarshish, we don't care about the Ninevites. As a matter of fact, we hope they receive judgment from the hand of Almighty God. In Tarshish, it's actually really, really hard to hear the voice of God because our bubble of comfort and complacency is so tough for God to break through. And I worry about myself, and I wonder why I don't care more about lost souls, the people in Nineveh, who are about to experience God's wrath. And I actually enjoy that rather than wish that they would repent and be converted and receive life. After all, they're never really going to be as good as I am anyway. So why go to Nineveh? So Jonah, we understand, he wanted a God that he could control. 
And in, in Matthew 12, the religious leaders come to, to Jesus and they say, give us a sign. Master, give us a sign. We want a sign that you're the Messiah. And, and, and God says, Jesus says he's not going to give him a sign except the prophet Jonah. And, and Jonah and these religious people wanted the same thing. They wanted a God they could control. You know, do something for us. Uh, don't rescue Nineveh. We don't like that, but give us mercy. And the religious scribes, they wanted a sign. They wanted a God that they could manipulate and control. But Jesus said that the Ninevites who repented at the preaching of Jonah will condemn the generation who did not repent at the teaching of Jesus. So we talked about, um, and we're going to wrap up here, we talked about Jonah going down to Joppa. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went laid down to sleep and ended up down at the bottom of the ocean. It's one of the word pictures that the author wants you to see. Down, down, down. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's his running, it's his apathy, he's rebellious, and so it's leading him down. But I'd like, if you would, in closing, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And I'd like to look at another person who went down, who came down. And you can read uh, Philippians verses 5 through 8. And I'm going to just give a little commentary on those verses in closing and make a few more comments and then we'll dismiss. Jesus, God, came down. He humbled himself. Christ did not hold tightly his equality with God. He, he was able to leave it go. He was an equal member of the Trinity, but he didn't hold tightly to that position. And he rather willingly and humbly allowed himself to be put under God the Father. And he didn't hold in clenched fists that, uh, that, that role or that equality that he had with God. But he lowered himself. And no one ever lowered himself from as lofty a position as that of Christ. In verse 7, the humble descent of Christ continued from the Trinity and heaven where he emptied himself. He gave up his reputation. And none of us knows what it means to empty ourselves of our reputation. We hold on to that very tightly. And especially not to the extent that Christ emptied himself. So he gave up the heavenly glory and authority. Now he needed to submit to the Father. He gave up his divine nature and heavenly riches. And he did this all for my sake. He became alienated from God as he descended downward. It's immeasurable steps from the court of heaven to being a slave on earth. We don't come close to comprehending the level of uh, the distance that God needed to travel to reach us. He descended now, his descent from the heavenlies included being a man, so he now is limited to all the functions that, that men are, the, limited, the limitations and the humanness. And not only that, he came in the lowest form. He came as a child, as a servant. He truly emptied himself of his reputation and his status. And it's important to note on this, uh, on this descent 
that not only did he decline, did he decline from the, the loftiest of heights, but he descended far below human status. He took on the form of a slave, and not only that, but he offered himself in death. And death, in the most horrific death a human mind can comprehend, being stripped and hung to die on the cross for us to see. Jesus came to earth to endure hell on a cross so that we would never know what hell is like. Jesus is everything that Jonah was not. Jonah went down because of his disobedience and rebellion and apathy and idolatry, but God came down willingly out of love and humility to the Father. Jesus eagerly brought the good news down to us, the good news of grace and his overflowing love for me. And he did this willingly, and he held nothing back. And he overturned my sin with his righteousness in a single act of grace. There are many gods today that that we worship, and probably none as big as self. And without a substitute for our dead, selfish lives spent running from God, we would die without hope. But God provided a way for us to receive life and escape his wrath. And it's through the blood of Jesus and his free gift of grace that we can boldly bow to worship in the presence of a holy God. And so I believe at Christmas time is about as good a time as any to stop running. To allow the gift of grace and the presence of Jesus, God with us, to disrupt, disrupt our lives and awaken us to new life in Christ. You are not God, so get off the throne and invite God to take over your life. Enough of myself, enough running, enough storms, enough of the stench of seaweed, more repentance, more life, more grace that comes from Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the lesson that Jonah 